0: Hear the word of God from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 through 15, located on page 812 in the Pew Bible. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and and was baptized by John the Jordan. And just as he was descending up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my Son, the Beloved, and with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and angels waited upon him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Good morning, everybody. The Lord be with you. As Brent and Vicky have both indicated today, we are, as part of our worship, remembering our baptism. And just a little later, we'll be sharing together in a service of the reaffirmation of baptism and the renewal of our covenant commitment to God. Everybody will be invited to come forward and to dip their hands in the font uh, to remember your baptism. Or if you haven't been baptized, Uh, to come and to dip your hands in the font as a sign perhaps of that which is still awaiting you within your faith story. And so let's bow our heads now in a moment of prayer as we come before God. Let us pray. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So why did Jesus get baptized by John in the Jordan? Have you ever thought about that? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But if Jesus was without sin, which is one of the cornerstone convictions of the Christian faith, if he was without sin, then why would he need to be baptized? One of the ways in which I've always made sense of this has been to say that Jesus didn't need to be baptized in the sense of having to repent of anything but that he chose to be baptized in order to identify himself with sinful humanity. That at the very start of his public ministry, he chose to stand not in an elevated, holier-than-thou position of separation from the people, but rather with those for whom he had come. Such was his heart of compassion. He wanted to identify with them in their sin, so that the forgiveness of sins that he was all about was something that he might share with them in an intimate way. I think that there's gospel truth in that reading of Jesus' baptism, but is there a further way in which it can be understood? one in which the actual experience of undergoing John's baptism played more than just a, a symbolic part in Jesus' life that actually did something for him. A biblical theologian by the name of Ched Myers suggests that there is. He suggests that for Jesus, this was in fact a genuine act of repentance. Not in the sense of having to repent of any personal sinful wrongdoing, for he was indeed without sin, but in the sense of letting go of his life and identity as a young Jewish man indebted to the entire moral and social order into which he had been born. Ched Myers suggests that in a very real sense, before his public ministry could begin, Jesus needed to repent, as it were, of his old life. As a devout but voiceless carpenter from Nazareth, to die to that old life, as it were, and so be inducted into the broader identity that was his as the Christ, the Son of God. John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins becomes the hinge moment in this crucial move in the ministry of Jesus. As he went under the waters of the Jordan, it was for him like a dying to that old life and a relinquishment of that settled life in Nazareth that he had known. And as he came up out of the water, it was for him arising to a new and fuller identity as the one through whom the forgiveness of sins would be known. Indeed, the text says that as he was coming up out of the water, he suddenly saw everything in a whole new way. As he was coming up out of the water, he saw that the heavens were torn open and the descending spirit like a dove could be seen. And then there came this voice from heaven, speaking such gracious words that would surely sustain him through everything that was still to come. You are my son, the beloved with you I am well pleased. If there's any doubt about the significant moment that his baptism represented ushering him into a whole new order of existence, well then in the very next verses we we, we see that the settled life that he had known in Nazareth is over forever. For immediately we read, the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness to hammer out on the anvil of vulnerability and temptation how exactly he would choose to live out his belovedness in the world. That's a story that we'll explore in greater detail next week. Today's passage ends with Jesus going back to Galilee, back to the very place from whence he emerged, but he returns in a whole new way. We're told that John, the one who had baptized him, has been arrested. Clearly, as Jesus had discovered in the wilderness, there are dark powers at work within the world, deeply opposed to the birthing of this new order. But Jesus goes back to Galilee, a silent carpenter no more. He goes back in a whole new way and starts proclaiming the good news of God, that the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that all should repent and believe the good news, that all should hear the invitation to come as he had come, to be ushered into this new reality of what God was doing in the world. Now today we come to remember and to reaffirm our baptism. To remember that through the waters of baptism we have been drawn into a new identity, into a whole new existence as it were. As we prepare ourselves for that For that beautiful part of our service this morning, what does this story about Jesus' baptism say to us? What invitation does it extend to us? Well, it seems to me that this story about Jesus leaving behind an old way of life and stepping into something wholly new It seems that it is for us an invitation in a similar way, to die to old ways of living and to be raised into that new identity that is truly ours as the beloved children of God. This is something we remember happened for us in our baptism, but it's something that is an ongoing need for us as the followers of Christ, for we so easily slip back into false notions of who we are and our place in the world. This struck home for me a while back in quite a humorous way. It was like a little death and resurrection moment. Lee and I were in a shopping mall when we bumped into some college students from the church, a group of really beautiful young women. And so we got chatting, and I can tell you, man, oh man, I was in fine form, if I say so myself. I was sharp and witty and engaging. The conversation sparkled. They were all laughing at my jokes. I tell you, I was in the zone. As we walked away, Lee said to me, Wow, love, that was really impressive. And I said, Yeah, I thought so too. Turns out that I've still got it, eh? Yeah, this old dog? Yeah. She said, No, 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 that's not what I meant. I was just amazed at how long you were able to suck in your gut. <laughs> we all like to present ourselves in the best possible light, don't we? And somehow feel that who we are is, is wrapped up in that. We, we, we like to offer an airbrushed image of ourselves to the world, as it were. With all our flaws and imperfections covered over. Our Facebook posts are a classic example of how we, 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 we like to be seen, how we want to be seen as we present an embossed picture of ourselves to the world. For the most part, it's one long exercise in sucking in your guts, metaphorically speaking. I guess it's because deep down we fear that we are not nearly interesting enough or smart enough or attractive enough or good enough to cut it in the eyes of others. It happens so easily and so quickly as we are drawn back into a false identity of who we really are. But then someone who knows us, who calls us beloved, sees through all of that, as my beautiful wife did, and loves us all the same. That's what it means to be held in the eyes of your beloved. And so it is with God. As God looks upon us And sees us being drawn back into those false notions of who we are. And says, you can be released of that. You can die to that. There is a new existence, a new identity, a new reality that you can know. And when you dare to step into that, dying to that old self and rising to the new life that is in Christ. You become an instrument of the heralding of God's kingdom and the good news that God in fact is here and so as we think about the simple but profound gospel truth of the invitation that Christ and his example presents to us to dare to let go of limited ideas of who we are and embrace that fuller identity as the beloved sons and daughters of God. As we come this morning to remember our baptism and the death and resurrection that it proclaims, in which we are able to step into that newer and fuller existence. So I'd like to close with a story of one of the, my heroes of the faith and the ways in which he faced the death of his old life and was raised into the glorious new life that god had always intended for him it's the story of oscar ramiro the archbishop of el salvador from 1977 Until his death in 1980, at a time when his country was under the oppressive rule of a violent military dictatorship. When he became Archbishop, Ramiro was widely regarded as a conservative academic who wouldn't rock the boat. Social activists in the church lamented his appointment as Archbishop. The government welcomed it. But all of that quickly changed just two and a half weeks after his appointment as archbishop a jesuit priest and personal friend of ramiro's a father rutilio grande was assassinated his death had a profound impact on ramiro it was like a baptism for him through which he was ushered into a whole new identity that enabled him to see and act In a bold new way. Later in speaking of that experience. He said. When I looked at Rotilio Lying there dead. I thought. If they've killed him for doing what he did. Then I too. Have to walk the same path. And walk that same path he did. That moment of baptism as it were heralded his rebirth. He soon shifted from a conservative, disconnected academic and became an outspoken critic of the government. His voice became the voice of the poor and the oppressed of his land as he took a brave stance against the injustice that was now so evident all around. And as he did so, He discovered a new freedom to live, maybe because death in one sense had already been faced and for him in one sense was already past. This is powerfully demonstrated in a scene from the movie about his life, Romero. In the scene, the army had just occupied a church And turned it into a military barracks. And so Romero went to this church to receive the sacred elements of the sacrament. On hearing his intentions, the sergeant in charge took an automatic rifle, blasted the altar to pieces, and screamed at the archbishop to get out. A visibly shaken Romero left the church. But outside he stopped as he remembered why he had come and so turned around and walked back inside. He went to the altar and on his knees started to gather up the blasted bits of the communion elements. The sergeant in fury grabbed another automatic rifle, emptied a further magazine of bullets in the altar, kicked Romero and had him thrown out of the church. Romero then gets into a car and drives away. But soon he returns. This time he has with him his robe and stole. He puts them on and starts walking slowly and deliberately to the church, clearly intent on reclaiming it as a place of worship and celebrating the sacrament within it. As he walks to the church, so he is joined by other priests and onlookers. As they approach the entrance of the church, two soldiers raise their automatic rifles, and the sergeant in charge, standing between them, draws a handgun and points it straight at Ramiro. He looks straight back at the guns and keeps on walking towards them, knowing that at any moment those triggers could be pulled, spitting instant death. As Ramiro walks resolutely towards those guns, facing and accepting the death that they threatened, something changes. In that moment, the sergeant's power, the power of his gun, the power of the threat of death, crumbled, powerless to resist. The sergeant drops his gun and turns his head and Ramiro and the great crowd behind him walk into the church. Together they celebrate the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ and the glory and the transforming power of his death and resurrection. It was a glory That Ramiro himself would share. On the 24th of March 1980, while he was celebrating Mass, an assassin's rifle rang out and a bullet pierced his heart. And just like that, Oscar Ramiro died. And yet, it was a death that wasn't a death in the ultimate sense. For the witness of his life lives on even now. And the glory of God that we see in him, the glory of a human being fully and freely alive, the glory of death and resurrection, the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, that is the glory. The same glory that shines over your life and mine today telling us not to be afraid calling us to lay down our lives also to journey through the waters of baptism, of death and resurrection so that the likeness of God might be seen in us we who are truly the beloved sons of and daughters of God. And so let me close with words spoken by Oscar Romero. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us, No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. We come today to embrace that, And to allow the new life that is ours in Christ to be sown within our world for the good news that it most truly is. Thanks be to God. Amen.